listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. <clears throat> Ladies, I cannot recommend that study enough. Uh, I, I don't know the study, but I know Carrie and her heart uh, is really to create a community and places for women to connect with each other and to have relationship. Uh, it's actually become so important this summer that they opened up a third option. It'll be online on the website either later today or tomorrow, but if you want, are looking for a place in the chaos of this summer to have consistent, regular connection with other women, that class would be the place for you. Now, my name is JT Manning, as Josh mentioned, and today we're going to be talking about conflict. And before I get into the content, I wanted to cover one thing uh, conflict is not. And conflict is not abuse. So if as you're hearing this, you're thinking about abuse or abusive relationships you've had in the past, I promise you that is not what I'm talking about. However, if you're interested in more information on that, or you want to partner with a ministry that is making a world of difference in the Palouse, in the conversation of abuse on the Palouse, tongue twister apparently, then I definitely welcome you to uh, use the connection cards and let us give us your information. We partner with an amazing ministry that is absolutely changing the conversation. But today we are talking about uh, conflict. And um, it's not just a standalone sermon. It isn't just a bright idea we had all of a sudden. It's part of a, a much bigger multi-phase uh, conversation that we're in. We're in phase two of three, so this is the conclusion of phase two. And uh, the first phase, if you remember, uh, it comes up in this four-part graphic here. It's uh, text, prayer, worship, and fasting. So this is all an internal conversation. This is between you and God and your relationship with God and about having right relationship. And when you have these four parts in a healthy balance, all of a sudden it starts to change your relationship with God and you're a healthier person because of it. After your internal conversation, we then changed to an external conversation with the circle. The circle we put together, came up with eight pieces, yeah, uh, of conflict, forgiveness, ownership, boundaries, priority and time, empathy, identity, and emotional vocabulary. These are kind of eight pieces of a healthy relationship with someone else. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it is a very healthy list. It's a well-rounded list, you might say. Uh, but it, it is all about an external conversation that you're having with other people. Now, uh, Kind of with all of that, they, they weren't just good ideas, they're really tools in your tool belt. I, I have this image of Mission Impossible where they get the tape and it's your mission if you choose to accept it. Uh, really, these tools, if you choose to use them, can help you have healthier relationships with the people in your life. And so with that, why, why would they give me conflict? Uh, you know, kind of kind of being who I am, they, they knew some things coming up in my life, and so uh, I want to give you some imagery as to why they might choose me for conflict. Uh, the first picture we have is the first image. That is currently my kitchen. <laughs> and for me, the kitchen is the heart of my home, so that means this kitchen being in complete demo between here and the extended mudroom in the back means my heart really is in conflict as we're trying to figure it out. Uh, if you have uh, real tools that you would like to use on my kitchen, I invite you to use them. We could use the help for sure. <laughs> but really, um, that, that's caused a fair amount of conflict in my life. Uh, the, the second picture we have is why it causes conflict. Um, 
as a family, we have to work things out and live in the midst of this. Uh, my, my wife there on the right, maybe you've seen her leading worship here on occasion. Uh, she and I get to work through what do uh, cabinets look like, what does the kitchen look like, what, what are the right order of things, and how do we want to do this, who do we have do all the work. There, there's, those are a few questions of what we get to work through. And also then on the left, we have my wonderful son, who is an amazing little boy, but for whatever reason, he has completely redefined the phrase hostage negotiation. <laughs> Dinner time is a beast. Like, for whatever reason, getting him in his chair is just like, I will like, give you the moon if you would just get in your chair and not cry tonight. That would be amazing. Um, but really, that is like 5% of the time. The kid is awesome, and my wife has been amazing to work with as we're putting together our kitchen. Um, and, and so all of that has given me some tools to understand. And so I thought we would, we would look at three things today. We would look at kind of an unhealthy example of conflict. We'd look at a healthier example of conflict. And then some practical tools of what, how we might work through conflict in a better way. And the first place my mind went when it came to conflict was Cain and Abel. You had the, these two guys and Cain kills Abel and that's obviously negative conflict. And so I just wanted to see how that would play out and so we're going to pick up in Genesis 4. Uh, this is immediately after Cain kills Abel, and God comes in and starts talking to Cain, and this is what he has to say. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to you to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer, restless wanderer. He's not getting to set, settle down on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. The image in my mind of this mark is uh, in The Lion King when Rafiki has Simba and just kind of marks across his forehead. I, it, it's a prettier image, like a scar or like a cut or anything. I, it just makes me feel better about the conversation. Um, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Enoch, then Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. Notice how he's supposed to be a restless wanderer, but now he's building a city. To Enoch was born Irad, which is an early 2000s Apple product, I'm sure. And Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Remember Lamech, we're going to come back to him. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal came. We'll come back to him who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nema. We'll also come back to her. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. 
I don't know what husband gets to say that to his wives. <laughs> I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Revenge. That is what defines Lamech. And the only place he could have learned it is from his father, from his father, from his father, all the way back to Cain, until you have Cain defined by vengeance. And from Cain to six generations later, his son says, I am the epitome of vengeance. You get in my way, I will kill you. You cross me a little, I will kill you twice. And then you have Tubal-Cain, who's Lamech's son, the forger of instruments of iron and bronze. The commentary says they weren't just in any instruments, they were actually the instruments of Cain. That Tubal-Cain's life was all about perfecting the instruments of Cain, the instruments of murder. Which means being raised in a house with Lamech led to Lamech continuing this conversation of vengeance, this priority of vengeance and passing it on to his son. And his son to find himself by the same vengeance and priorities his dad did. And so as I was looking at this, I was trying to personally connect to the story and unfortunately it was far too easy for me to connect to the story. Because as I, I read the story, I was reminded of uh, being a 21 year old young guy who uh, in college, think I've got it all figured out and I get a phone call from my dad and he then explains to me how he's not coming home. How he's done, he's gonna move on with life. And so as being an intelligent 21-year-old in college, I then used every four-letter word I know and completely explained to him what a terrible person he was and what I thought of him. I put my pain, my anger, my vengeance, ahead of God's priorities. And now today, every time I pick up a phone, I get to think about that moment and I get to carry that moment with me as something that defines me. But it is not the thing that defines me. And it is only a chapter in my story. And I know that I'm not the first person to be in a situation like that. And I know I'm not the first person to have conflict. Because what I've learned is conflict is, is kind of like a junk drawer, the junk drawer that you have in your kitchen, where when you grab it and you open it up, it's probably a mess. And you kind of reach in to grab like the thing you want and you pull it out and you try to push everything else back and close the drawer before it all comes spilling over. Conflict is only a mess if, it, if you let it be. Because the other option is you open your junk drawer you go on Marie Kondo, and then you have everything in these nice little boxes, and it's nice and neat. Conflict can be nice and neat, like a clean junk, junk drawer. And that's why I wanted to look at kind of a, a healthier example of that, uh, an example of, of Saul, who we first meet in Acts. Uh, Saul is kind of a fiery guy. Um, just let Acts do the talking, I don't need to explain him. Saul approved of their killing him. Saul later becomes Paul, killing him. The him there is a man named Stephen. He was the first martyr in the early church. So you might say Saul was a pretty fiery guy. 
Well, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, destroy. The ESV says ravaging the church. Not a very peaceful guy, seems pretty fiery, pretty mission-oriented. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This man of fire, this man of vim and vigor, probably caused a lot of conflict. Obviously, he was causing conflict in Jerusalem. Fortunately for us, uh, Paul journeys out from there and he has this experience where God gets a hold of his heart. He captures the fire and redirects it in a better, healthier direction. And in doing so, Paul now recognizes Christ as his priority. And so he goes back to Jerusalem where he'd been persecuting people, saying, yes, I'm in. And they look at him and say, think we're gonna kill you. (laughs) Which makes sense, he was persecuting them. So they kind of work it out and get things to a better place, but eventually he then leaves for another, uh, another city. But remember, the original persecution drove a bunch of people out of Jerusalem. So people were now scattered all over the place, and Jerusalem thought, hey, we should probably send some people from the church here to go help those churches. So they sent Barnabas. Barnabas, who's known as the son of encouragement, he, uh, my image of him really is uh, Brian Brutzman, who's our, in charge of our men's ministry. He, he is awesome. The man is an encourager, and man, if Barnabas was better than that, I could not imagine how awesome Barnabas was, but Brian Brutzman's pretty amazing. Uh, so he goes out, and he's going city to city, encouraging all these cities, helping them develop, trying to help them grow, and from there he realizes, man, I'm doing a good job, but golly, wouldn't it be great if we had somebody with real fire and passion under their belt? And so he gets Paul, and he brings Paul into the conversation, and then they travel around all the cities and developing these cities and growing cities, and Paul's on mission with fire and passion. Barnabas is on mission with love and encouragement, and I could not imagine a greater missionary duo in history. Eventually, all these churches they're developing hear of persecution in Jerusalem, so they send Paul and Barnabas with some money to help support the church in Jerusalem. The things kind of quiet down in Jerusalem, and so they give Paul and Barnabas uh, a mission to go back out on mission, and they bring with them John Mark, because why would they go alone? Why would they try to do this by themselves? They need to show someone else how to do this too. So they travel around with John Mark, and after a few cities, they, he, they hit some more persecution. But this time, John Mark's like, uh, you know, this isn't really for me, so he goes back to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas continue on mission, traveling around, encouraging churches. Later, they go back to Jerusalem, kind of this back and forth, back and forth. Now they're back in Jerusalem for a little bit. They make some decisions about inclusion of Gentiles, which is really good for you and I. And Paul and Barnabas go back out on mission one more time. And this time they both want to bring somebody. Paul goes and gets Silas, and he wants to bring Silas with him because he wants to develop someone. And Barnabas goes to get John Mark. And so the four of them get together, and Paul says, you're bringing John Mark? Barnabas says, of course. Paul says, that's not a great idea. He left us. They go back and forth a few times till finally they're like, eh, okay. Paul, Barnabas is going to go one way and Paul's going to go the other way and 
That's kind of the end of the greatest missionary duo ever. Which brings up a huge question for me. Who is John Mark? So I started doing some research and looking into it. And eventually what I found was that pretty early in Acts, uh, Peter had his experience in the prison where God let him out of the prison and he went out and he went to John Mark's house. And Peter and John Mark must have been pretty close because later in Peter, uh, Peter refers to Mark as uh, like a son. Colossians also tells us that John Mark and Barnabas were cousins. So that'd explain why Barnabas would stick up for him. But still they went their separate ways. But we also know that they must have worked it out because Paul and Barnabas wrote some letters back and forth or they met or something because this is what Peter had to say or what Paul had to say about John Mark later. And Philemon, he says, John Mark is his fellow prisoner, which is at least good recognition that John Mark is trying to do something. And in 2 Timothy, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. Very useful for ministry. Paul went from do not bring that guy to very useful for ministry. So they spent enough time in the first century when all they could do was write letters, which is one person writing a letter, handing it to someone that then has to hand deliver it to the other person to sort out their relationship. They took the time to work it out. Maybe eventually they met and kind of worked things through there. No matter what they did, they actually took the time to do it and they couldn't text, email, or phone call. So again, I tried to look at my own life and started peeling back layers of like, where have I dealt with conflict well? And honestly, I was coming up pretty short. I could not find a place where I'd really done it well. Uh, but in a way, the script writers at HBO or CBS could not imagine the God, God, our God, provided me with an opportunity. Because on Tuesday night, I come home and I was running behind and had forgotten about a couple of things and that made my wife late because she needed to get out of the house and she had a few things she needed to get done. So now we get to have a conversation between her and I about how I can better show her that I value her. And I got to own some ways that I really had hurt her and let her down. Because truth be told, she brought up some very valid thoughts, some very valid hurts, and it was my job to own them. Unfortunately, I'd been working on this sermon, so I had some very useful tools. <laughs> kind of the, the first tool that we put in your notes and is this tool of identity. It's something we can start working on right now. It's just identifying ourselves and understanding ourselves. How do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with life when life is going well? Who are we? Who do we, who do we try to be? We start with identity and understanding ourselves. After identity is conflict. It always seems to come back around. It comes back around, it comes back around. So there will be an opportunity as you're right, trying to understand yourself to engage in conflict. And after you get into conflict, well, if you've been working on your emotional vocabulary, you can kind of understand how to identify what it is you're feeling. 
So then you have these feelings coming up while you're having conflict with someone and then you can maybe even have enough empathy to hear what they say and help them identify their emotions and what they're feeling. And then even more than that, within empathy, you can listen well enough and listen often enough to hear what they're saying and when appropriate, when true, when very real, you can say, me too. And these next two, if we, if we as a Christian community, as we as a church, the people sitting in this room got these next two right, more often than not, we could change the face of the Palouse. Ownership. They're gonna tell you thing after thing that you did to hurt them, different ways that they've hurt you, that you've hurt them, and things that you did wrong. And whether you did them or not. Because the reality is, is something happened, or something didn't happen, and now there's hurt. And there's three sides to it. There's their side, there's your side, and then there's somewhere in the middle, there's the truth. And so if you just own your part, as they're telling you thing after thing that you did, yep, I did that, yep, I did that, yep, I crossed that line, yep, I did that. And when they're done, they're finally get it all out on the table, you then say, please forgive me. You can own it and ask for forgiveness. We could change the face of the Palouse. And then after, now that you've owned what it is that's happened and you've asked for forgiveness and they've forgiven you, he then talk about boundaries. Because conflict, you cross boundaries. Whether you crossed a boundary that was spoken, you crossed a boundary that was unspoken, they crossed a boundary that was spoken, they crossed a boundary that was unspoken, you now get to talk about them and set them up for real. And now you have a healthy playing space, a healthy field of play where you can now operate and have healthier relationships. And the last bit is priority. You walk through these steps, you've now shown them that they are a bigger priority than your agenda. They are a bigger priority than the hurts that you've had in the past. They are more of a priority. God's people, God's, God's most prized possession is more of a priority than your hurts. Change the world. Your tools, if you choose to use them. The next part of this is uh, we're going to go towards communion. And communion is our time to remember the Lord's Supper, and we have what's called an open table. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us. As, and they're going to pass out the trays. And as they do that, we're gonna go through these questions for home group. Home group is uh, where we talk these things through. I love my home group. It meets on Mondays if you need a group. Uh, and right now is a great time to get in a group because we're headed into summertime, so there's more barbecues. <laughs> but these are just questions to use at your dinner table, questions to use at home group, questions to use in your me and threes, you're meeting with people that you're close with. And the first question is this. How has God used conflict in your life to grow you personally? This is an opportunity to celebrate conflict. Old things you've already dealt with. Excuse me. Things that have already come and gone. Someone that modeled conflict well in your life. Celebrate them. A moment where you modeled conflict well. Celebrate that. Conflict doesn't have to be a negative thing, especially the old stuff that's already over. This is an opportunity to celebrate it. 
Next question. When it comes to conflict, how are God's priorities your priorities? Remember, we're talking about Nema earlier, and I told you to hold on to our name because God's priorities are people, and she's proof of that. You see, just because there was conflict and Cain defined himself by vengeance, and then he passed that down from generation to generation throughout his family, God never stopped showing up. Generation after generation, throughout all of this vengeance, God was constantly inviting them back into relationship to be a part of his kingdom. And Nema is proof. Because the commentary is on Nema that she was not only the one to accept his invitation, but she was also the wife of Noah. And so she then was part of saving the world because she decided vengeance isn't my priority, people are my priority. No matter what your history is, generation of generation or just your life, God is still inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. God is still inviting us all to be a part of prioritizing his people over our own hurts and wants. The next question. Who do you need to resolve conflict with? So I have a very unfortunate promise with conflict and it comes from Proverbs 27. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, I like to say, sometimes there's sparks. So if there's someone you need to resolve conflict with, and you go to them and you start working it out, sometimes there's sparks. But as you work it out, the sparks don't define you. What defines you is your priority of the other person. And when we show them that and there's sparks anyways, we don't lose because there's sparks, we move on. Just like Paul and Barnabas in the first century had to work it out, they did and they hung in there. Despite the sparks coming from a fiery person like Paul, they worked it out anyways. And fortunately for us, they did. Because as much as Paul wrote most of the Old Testament, John Mark did something significant as well. You see, after he abandoned them and when they encountered persecution, John Mark went back to Jerusalem. And we've kind of established that he had a pretty close relationship with Peter. And Peter, who was one of the 12 disciples, would have given John Mark quite a bit of information and learning. And he would have given him quite a bit about Jesus' life throughout their time together as they became like father and son. And because of the information that John Mark learned and what he had, he was able to then take that information and write what we call today the Gospel of Mark. But Paul almost missed it he didn't have the information to consider that because he didn't get to see into John Mark's past. He didn't get to see John Mark while he wasn't there. In the same way, you don't get to see your coworkers when you're not with them and you don't know what they're dealing with at home. I don't get to see my friends when they're not around. And I don't get to see what they're dealing with when we're not with each other. So I don't know what it is that's coming out right now that's hurting, but something just happened and this is my opportunity to engage and show them that they're more of a priority than the hurt that might have just happened. And we have a healthier relationship because of it. 
So who do you need to work out conflict with and how can you show them that, the, that they are more of a priority than your hurts and your priorities, that God's people are your priority? And the last question. I can't help but to have a heavy sigh with this one because this is the one that's really been working me over the most. What unresolved conflict are you holding on to? As I've been working through this material, it's caused me to sit back and take layer after layer, after layer after layer, and dig deep down in myself to suddenly realize that I have hurts I'm holding on to. There have been moments where someone didn't show up when they said they would. There have been moments when people left me when I needed them most. There have been moments when people just haven't followed through on what they said they wanted to do. And all of that plays together into this little story in the back of my mind that says, you're not worth it. And over and over again, it makes me want to just push off and take off and not, not engage. They don't want to show up and I don't want to be there. And what? What I've learned from that is this. It only ends poorly if you give up before it gets better. If, you, if I give up before the relationship is over, if you give up before the relationship is over, before you can make things better, then it ends poorly. If you stop showing up, it is over and it's over the way it is, which probably isn't good. which means I have to keep showing up and doing the hard work. But we can change the world if we do it. And in a minute, we're gonna sing a song. And as I was preparing, I looked through the songs and saw the lyrics, and these lyrics stuck out to me as, as a part of what we're talking about. The, the first line is, it chases me down, fights till I am found, and leaves the 99. God chases you down. He leaves the 99 until you're found. He sets his priorities aside to come get you and bring you back, which is his invitation for you to set aside your priorities and to go find the person that needs your help, that's hurt you, and to show them that they're more of a priority than your priorities. The next line is, I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. I can't earn God's love, I don't deserve God's love, and still he keeps showing up over and over and over again. And the people that have hurt me, they probably can't earn it, they probably can't deserve it, and yet God invites me to show up over and over and over again to make a difference in their lives to restore relationships, not divide them. God's invitation is the same to you. And the last question that shows up in my mind, not the last question, the last line of this song that nails me between the eyes. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. When my face was set against God, when I had turned my back and when I was running, God still fought for me. He still came out to get me, to love me, to show me that I had more value than the anger towards my dad, than the hurts I'm holding on to. God still chased me down and brought me back 
And in the same way, he invites me, he invites you to go out and fight for the people that need it, the people who might even be your foe, and to show them that you love them more than your agenda. We don't end up writing history books much about agendas. We do end up writing history books about people that change the world. And they usually do it through relationships. Our invitation to reach the world for Jesus, one person at a time. And in the same way we have conflict today, I guarantee you a bunch of young men sitting around a table with Jesus, some of them being quite a bit more conservative because that's the part of the country they were from, and a little, some of them being quite a bit more liberal because that's the part of the country they were from, they still had to work out their differences and their conflict. And that's where Jesus showed up with the bread at this last supper with these young men. And he used the bread to show them that this is their way to remember him. That though his body would be broken, he invited them to remember him. Let's remember his bro- the loss of his blood. In the same way, he took a cup during this Passover meal, a very specific cup, a cup that none of them were qualified to drink and none of us are qualified to drink, but Christ drank it and said that he would take it for us and make an opportunity for us to be able to drink of the cup and invite us to drink with him because this is his blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember. Lord God, you know it's in our hearts. You know where we've been. You know our stories and you know where we're at. More importantly, you know where we're going and you're taking us to what comes next. Please be with us this week that we'd remember your words as we engage with the people around us that we would know your way of showing people that they are more of a priority than whatever our agenda is, that we would have an understanding of how to set our agenda aside. We thank you and praise you for the invitation and the opportunity we have to be a part of your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.